Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. An investigative journalist questions what was really behind the FBI's search of former President Trump's home. He says it could be related to one of Trump's lawsuits. The New York primaries are today. Races to watch include incumbent Democrats running against each other in newly drawn congressional districts. And who will take on Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida's gubernatorial election? Democrats in Florida are casting votes for their nominee today. A political science professor tells us what he expects to see. The U.S. is urging American citizens to leave Ukraine, fearing a Russian attack on the country's capital. This comes after Kyiv shuts down Independence Day celebrations. One investigative journalist suggests that the FBI's raid on former President Trump's home wasn't about an election, nor the January 6th commission, like many skeptics of the FBI hold to be true. He suggests the intelligence community didn't want information about Russiagate to be made public. Now, in stark contrast to both of these theories is what one document that was released says, that the search was over national defense information, interfering with a federal investigation, and government records. Entity's Jessica Beatty explains. Journalist Jeff Carlson says the FBI's Mar-a-Lago raid was likely related to the potential unsealing of certain documents, especially related to Trump's RICO lawsuit against Hillary Clinton, the DNC, and former FBI officials. RICO stands for Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. According to the lawsuit, Trump's suing them for conspiring to weave a false narrative that Trump was colluding with a hostile foreign country, namely Russia. In Carlson's news analysis published in the Epoch Times Saturday, he also cites a Newsweek article from last week. In it, two sources in the intelligence community said the FBI was looking for documents Trump had collected that he thought would prove Russiagate was a hoax. Carlson also cited a sequence of events starting with Trump declassifying materials related to the FBI's crossfire hurricane investigation. Those still haven't been brought to the public. Carlson will also address this topic in his show Truth Over News on Epic TV this week. Meanwhile, Trump's legal team wants a third-party attorney to oversee the review of evidence seized from his home in Florida. The so-called special master would also determine if any of the documents should ultimately be returned to the former president. Trump's team is asking a federal judge to pause the criminal investigation until a review is done. The filing also argues Trump's constitutional rights were violated. This is the first legal move by Trump's team since FBI agents carried out the search on August 8th. Also on Monday, a judge acknowledged that the search affidavit may be heavily redacted. The affidavit is a document that convinced the court that Trump's home should be searched. But Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt says he still believes the document should be made public, even if a lot of it is blacked out. He's giving the Justice Department until Thursday at noon to propose redactions about what it wants to keep secret. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. And in Florida, voters are casting ballots in the primaries. The winners will become the nominees for November's gubernatorial and congressional elections. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. Brian Fonseca is a political science analyst and professor at Florida International University. He says the Democratic primary for governor is the race to pay attention to. Arguably the most important primary race that's going to occur in Florida this week is certainly the Democratic gubernatorial race. This is essentially a primary race to determine who is going to take on uh, current Governor Ron DeSantis come midterm elections later on this year. 
And essentially, there are two candidates sort of vying for that seat. It's Charlie Chris and, and, and Nikki Fried. Fonseca also says the poll numbers still don't give a clear indication of how the candidates are doing. Chris still has a slight advantage, but I do think that, you know, again, anything is possible and Nikki Fried could pull off an upset and win the Democratic primary, uh, it's really going to come down to whether or not Democrats get out to back one of their respective candidates, whether it's Chris or Freed. That's why I think it tends to be, you know, far, far closer than maybe the polls have suggested. Governor Ron DeSantis is unopposed as the Republican candidate. Fonseca says the battle between the Democratic and Republican parties is as intense as ever. So the, the country is is deeply polarized. There's no doubt about that. And, and political scientists have argued for this idea of pernicious polarization. And that is that we're at a state of polarization where um, it's no longer just two parties that are entrenched in their own beliefs, but it's two parties that look at the other as the enemy. Fonseca also predicts Governor DeSantis may be preparing for a presidential run. I think he's definitely thinking about it. I think a lot of the things that you sort of see coming out of, um, you know, out of Tallahassee, out of DeSantis's ad administration, tend to, um, you know, tend to lean towards a potential, you know, presidential run. Floridians are also choosing their nominees for November's congressional elections. The midterm elections will determine which party controls the House of Representatives and the Senate for the next two years. Early voting for the Florida primaries ended on Sunday. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. More election news. Today, New Yorkers are heading to the polls for the primaries. Redistricting has jumbled the state's election map, and there are important races to watch within the Democratic Party. New York is staging primaries after a court-appointed special master released a draft congressional map. Two Democratic Congress members, Caroline Maloney and Gerald Nadler, who have both served more than three decades in the House, are pitted against each other. They will be facing off against attorney Suraj Patel in New York's 12th district. Political analyst Hank Shankoff offers his thoughts. Carolyn Maloney's great strength is probably she's the architect and the builder, as she promised, of the 2nd Avenue subway. Gerald Nadler, on the other hand, his great claim to fame would be uh, the impeachment hearings of late. But he has, uh, with respect to record accomplishment on a constant basis, his major theme throughout his career has been the construction of the, uh, of the uh, Cross Hudson Harbor Tunnel, which has never been built. Shenkoff says even in this non-presidential year, a familiar figure is looming large in those elections. The reality is in both these campaigns and campaigns throughout the country on both sides of the aisle, Donald Trump is the social moment, he is the political moment, he is the dominating presence. In both cases, in the Nadler case and in the Goldman case and in, in, in the Brooklyn Queens district where Dan Goldman, uh, counsel to the impeachment committee, is also on the ballot as a, con as a running for Congress with no history of local involvement whatsoever. Following the redistricting, Democratic Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, chair of the National Democratic Party's congressional campaign arm, will run in a new district made up mostly of his Democrat colleague Mondaire Jones's seat. And Jones will run in Nadler's old district. Scheinkoff also comments on a major issue that looms large this election. What's also important to note is that the suburbs of New York City are changing in a different way. They're becoming much more black and Latin, but they're also becoming conservative again. Why crime? The number of reported crimes in suburban Nassau County in the first five months of the year was up 75 percent, both felonies and misdemeanors. Crime is the issue driving the moment. Turnout estimates are very low for the congressional and state Senate primaries. Politicos have put turnout at 10 percent or even lower in various parts of the state. 
Let's look at another election issue. As it stands right now, no food and water for Georgians as they vote. A federal judge refused to block part of a Georgia election law on this. It bans handing out these comforts to voters waiting in line at polling sites. The organization called New Georgia Project brought the case against the law. The group is linked to Stacey Abrams. She's the Democratic candidate for governor. The project has challenged some parts of the state's Election Integrity Act of 2021. The plaintiffs argue that the provision banning food and water distribution to voters waiting in line poses a threat to free speech. They say that includes the right to encourage participation in elections. The group requested blocking the provision while the case is pending. However, the state argues that the provision is necessary to protect against potential illegal campaigning or vote buying. Not to mention, state lawyers said it was too close to the upcoming election to make changes anyway. And in neighboring North Carolina, the Democrat-dominated state Supreme Court is blocking two amendments to the state's constitution. The voter ID amendment would have required that voters present a photo ID to vote in person. The tax cap amendment would have lowered the maximum state income tax from 10% to 7%. The two amendments were already approved by the Republican-dominated state legislature and ratified by voters in 2018. But the court says the votes are invalid since Republicans racially gerrymandered the state's voting map. The North Carolina NAACP brought the original lawsuit, and its leader praised the new ruling as a win for the rights of black voters. On the other hand, a Republican justice wrote a dissenting opinion. He says that the decision disenfranchises the state's voters who already voted to pass the amendments. He adds that it's not the court's place to determine what should be law. With the primary season underway, we take a closer look at how the information available online will impact voters and candidates. How can campaigns communicate their visions? And how will posts be monitored for misinformation? We hear from a communications expert. Joining us now to discuss how social media could impact the midterm elections is Andrew Selipak, who is a social media professor at the University of Florida. Great speaking with you today, Andrew. Thank you. Can you give us an overview of social media companies' election misinformation policies and what Americans need to be aware of? Well, the platforms are varying in terms of how they're dealing with misinformation. And a lot of it's really coming down to their own decisions as to what they're going to do when it comes to how they decide what is and is not misinformation. So it's quite a hodgepodge of what these platforms are doing, the information that's going to be permissible, the information that they're going to moderate, uh, and even information that they may not take down, put warning labels on, but could potentially just kind of bury in timelines that they don't allow other users to see. So from that perspective, it's really difficult to be able to know what you can post on which platform and how it's going to be allowed, not allowed, or buried. And that's going to kind of make it confusing, not just for users, but also for political action committees, for politicians, for political parties, in terms of what messages their audiences and potential audiences may see. Okay, you mentioned these warning labels. Facebook says its approach to political claims will be about the same as it was for the 2020 election cycle. Do you think it's best for the American people for Facebook to keep the same policy? Well, when we look at Facebook into 2020, one of the things that they did going into the election is they kind of had an understanding that, you know, this is a very contentious situation. We're very concerned about, you know, the, the sort of the atmosphere and, and the temperatures getting a little bit too uh, hot when it comes to how people were feeling about it. And they made the conscious decision to kind of ratchet down the emotional posts that people would see higher in their timelines. Uh, they've done this before, not just in the United States, but they've done it in other countries when there was concern about sort of the political atmosphere and the social atmosphere. 
Uh, and what we saw with Facebook in 2020 is going into the election, one of the things that they did is they looked at people's posts, recognized what posts are more emotional, have more uh, you know, information that's not entirely factually correct, and buried it a little bit more. Then after the election, basically, we're like, oh, we want people to come back to our platform, so we're going to allow these more emotional posts, posts that don't have as much factual information in it, and allow the sort of users to become more angry, more upset with what other people were posting. Uh, and then after September, um, then after January 6th, uh, they basically were like, oops, that was a bad idea, uh, and went back to their pre-election policy. So what we see specifically with Facebook is they have an understanding that what people are posting, whether it is misinformation or just very emotional posts that they know people aren't going to enjoy but are going to keep them on the platform, they know how to manipulate our emotions. They know how to make people angry and upset. And they know this because it keeps people on the platform. They don't necessarily enjoy the experience, but they stay on there to argue, to look, to, to fight back. And the fact that they have this ability, they use this ability, and they don't do it to create a happier, better society, but just to sell more advertising, um, I think gives you all you really need to know about the information that you're getting on a platform like Facebook. That is really interesting how you mentioned how emotions are playing into the social media response. Now, how prevalent is election misinformation on social media and what are the common sources? Well, I mean, again, we're, we're, it's kind of difficult to take a holistic view of it because there is there are so many social media platforms now. Truth Social is going to be different from Twitter. Twitter is going to be different from TikTok. TikTok is going to be different from Instagram. It really is so different depending on the platform. And I think a lot of times people think, oh, well, there's just all this misinformation on social media. Well, it really depends on which platform and it really depends on what they decide is going to be misinformation on their platform. So I think the big thing for people to understand is that they're going to get different misinformation depending on the platform more than anything else. Very interesting analysis on this topic, and the public will be the ones to judge when we see this all play out. Professor Andrew Selipak, the University of Florida, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. A grim tale up ahead on NTD News. Torrential rain flooded parts of Dallas and Fort Worth, Texas on Monday, killing at least one. And mosquitoes are expanding their range, and their prime season is getting longer. So more Americans are resorting to professional yard spraying. Stay tuned for more after this short break. Floods in Dallas and Fort Worth, Texas on Monday. Torrential rain flooded parts of the cities, submerging vehicles. Officials warned drivers to stay off the roads. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the record rainfall. Rescue workers struggled to respond to hundreds of calls from residents taken off guard by the sudden downpour. Water seeped into some businesses and homes. My, my apartment is literally flooding. I just woke up and I don't, should I call at least one death has been attributed to the deluge. A 60-year-old woman from a Dallas suburb was killed when waters swept her vehicle off the interstate. She was found when waters receded. Dallas County declared a disaster and requested federal and state assistance for affected individuals. The National Weather Service issued a flash flood warning in the affected areas on Monday and asked people to stay off the roads. Dallas police say hundreds of accidents were reported during the flooding. Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport reported over nine inches of rain over 24 hours on Monday, the most on record since 1932. 
Hundreds of flights were delayed and canceled. At White Rock Lake in Dallas, the once dry concrete spillway was turned into what looked like river rapids. Dallas Fire Rescue says it responded to 195 high water incidents, rescuing 21 people and 10 dogs. The Fort Worth Fire Department says it received around 500 calls for service, performing over 170 high water rescues and investigations. The major flood threat is expected to subside in the area on Tuesday as storms shift eastward toward Louisiana and Mississippi. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The Dallas-Fort Worth area has been under extreme drought in recent months, and the dry soil can't absorb much water. In less than 24 hours between Sunday and Monday, the area received an entire summer's worth of rainfall. In other areas across the southern United States, around 9 million people are under a flood watch today. And the severe drought in Texas has uncovered a little piece of history. Dinosaur tracks from about 113 million years ago are visible in a dried-out river in Dinosaur Valley State Park. A park official says these tracks likely came from an Acrocanthosaurus, which weighed 7 tons and reached 15 feet tall. That's similar to the size of a T-Rex. The tracks are expected to be covered up again as rainwater fills the river. Park officials say that's a good thing because the water helps protect the prints from natural weathering and erosion. And changes in climate and temperature are widening mosquitoes' range and lengthening their prime season. Because of it, more Americans are resorting to a now-booming industry to combat them, professional yard spraying. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details. These workers are spraying yards for mosquitoes. The notorious insects have long plagued backyard barbecues. Well, if you like to be outside, uh, it certainly makes it more pleasant not to be swatting mosquitoes and and uh, worrying about you know all the issues. And if you have pets, uh, it certainly makes it more summer more enjoyable not to have to be concerned. In tropical nations, they carry serious diseases. It is really a, a serious concern, and that can vary by uh, region, uh, time of year, weather conditions, things like that. But the chemicals are beginning to worry scientists. They fear overuse of pesticides is harming pollinators and birds that eat insects. Yeah, if you're using a, a toxic chemical that's toxic to certain types of, of species like insects, um, you might expect to see some collateral damage. Pesticides are also a concern for household pets. One of our dogs likes to eat wood chips from the landscaping. I haven't figured out how to stop that yet. But if he's going to do that, you know, and there's a synthetic insecticide on it, that's, that's a great concern. According to the journal Biological Conservation, more than 40% of insect species worldwide are threatened with extinction, including some pollinator bees and butterflies. Spraying companies say they try to minimize pollinator losses. Pest control company Mosquito Joe says it avoids spraying on windy days when poisons would blow onto flowering plants that attract bees. We need our pollinators, right? They're incredibly important, but at the same time, uh, we need to elim eliminate mosquitoes that vector diseases. In 2020, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported significant increases in illnesses spread by mosquitoes and other blood feeders. Zika and West Nile viruses have turned up in the U.S. Experts say Michigan's mosquito season is about two months longer than a few decades ago. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And in other news, Amtrak is on a hiring spree. It's looking to fill 4,000 positions. 
They have more than 50 hiring events and career fairs planned across the country over the next several months to help find people to fill the positions. The jobs include management, finance, technology, onboard services, electrical, and customer service. Amtrak says starting pay for all onboard service jobs is $21 an hour. Journeyman electricians start at just over $34 an hour. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, China's stockpiled nuclear arsenal is posing a threat to the Indo-Pacific region. That's according to a warning from a U.S. Navy admiral. And Chinese telecom giant Huawei and the Solomon Islands have signed a new agreement. It will allow Huawei to build over 160 telecom towers in the island nation. Find out more right here on NTD News. Welcome back. A U.S. Navy admiral is warning about the threat from China's stockpiled nuclear arsenal. It's the only nation actively building nuclear weapons, and it's pioneering a new type of nuclear power reactor. Tiffany Meyer has that and more in today's China in Focus. The U.S. Indo-Pacific commander is warning that Beijing is seeking the largest military buildup in history since the Second World War. He adds that China's stockpiled nuclear arsenal poses a threat to the Indo-Pacific region. The commander, Admiral John Aquilino, says the only nation increasing the nuclear arsenal right now is the PRC. The PRC stands for the People's Republic of China, the country's formal name. He said China had 300 nuclear silos going in while the press conference was happening. The Pentagon estimated last year that Beijing could have up to 700 nuclear warheads by 2027. Continuing with nuclear technology, China operates 54 nuclear power reactors, and another 23 are currently under construction. That puts the country at second place for most nuclear reactors in the world. It trails behind the U.S., which has a whopping 93 nuclear reactors. But the world's nuclear list may shift as concerns over energy rise. Many countries are now weighing whether to revive their nuclear power plants. Though China seems to be taking it one step further. The Chinese communist regime has been targeting an advanced nuclear power technique for years. In China's remote northwest, scientists successfully built a molten salt reactor, and they're about to power it up. Instead of using uranium, it's powered by thorium, another radioactive metal. The reactor will be the first of its kind. And if China sees success with using thorium in reactors for commercial use, Beijing may be able to gain full intellectual property rights for it. Despite its uniqueness, the technology behind it isn't new. The U.S.-based Oak Ridge National Laboratory operated a similar prototype in the 1960s. But conventional water-cooled reactors were put in use instead. A new deal between China and the Solomon Islands takes their relations a step further. Under the newly signed agreement, China's telecom giant Huawei is allowed to build more than 160 telecommunications towers on the islands. A new deal between China and the Solomon Islands. Under it, Chinese telecom giant Huawei would build over 160 telecom towers in the island nation. To pay for the project, the Solomon Islands would take an over $60 million loan from a Chinese state-owned bank over 20 years. 
The deal is a step further in China's relationship with the Solomon Islands. The island nation has been a point of contention between the U.S., China and Australia. That has to do with its location. It has deep ports ideal for military bases and used to host a strategic headquarters for Japan and the U.K. when they control the Pacific. Back in World War II, the Solomon Islands was also a critical battlefield between the Allies and Japan. And this April, the West was put on alert after Beijing signed a security deal with the Solomon Islands. World powers like the U.S. and Australia are concerned that the deal could pave the way for a Chinese military base there, just a thousand miles off the coast of Australia. The U.S. and Australia ramped up their diplomatic engagement with the Solomon Islands following the deal. But China hasn't been sitting idly either. Months after the security deal, a Chinese state-owned company reached out to buy a forestry plantation on the Solomon Islands, though the Chinese buyer showed little interest in the trees. Instead, it asked detailed questions about the nearby deep water port. Back to the telecoms tower deal, it marks a blow for Australia's diplomatic efforts. Australia has been trying to stop Huawei from setting foot on the Solomon Islands. And it specifically bankrolled an undersea cable to the Solomon Islands to outbid Huawei. It's also funding six towers in the Solomon Islands, compared to Huawei's over 160 towers. What's more, concerns regarding Huawei equipment extend beyond Australia. In the U.S., Washington is also shelling out big money to kick Huawei out of America's telecom network. Washington says Huawei is a Trojan horse for Beijing and could use its gear to spy on Americans. An FBI investigation also found that Huawei has been setting up equipment on cell towers near American military bases. Many of those towers are in rural areas, so installing gear there is unlikely to turn a profit for the company. Some experts say that hints that the company has another purpose for pursuing them, like intel gathering. Drone images show a Chinese military ship leaving a Sri Lankan port. The ship docked there for a week-long stay in spite of opposition from neighboring India. Analysts say the Yuan Wang-5 is among a group of Chinese ships that monitor satellite, rocket, and intercontinental ballistic missile launches. Sri Lanka's northern neighbor, India, fears the Chinese regime could use the port as a military base. Sri Lanka delayed the ship's arrival after India raised concerns but gave in to Chinese demands later. The ship's next destination was not immediately known. The Pentagon says the People's Liberation Army operates the Yuan Wang ships. In 2017, China leased the Sri Lankan port for 99 years. The Chinese regime says the port is a key part of its Belt and Road Initiative. The initiative is known for exploiting the infrastructure of various countries for the Chinese regime's use. And coming up, the U.S. State Department responds to media reports that Dennis Rodman wants to go to Russia to help Brittany Griner. The U.S. government has other plans. United States officials are urging U.S. citizens to leave Ukraine, saying Russia could be preparing to target civilian and government infrastructure in the next few days. The warning follows a ban by the Ukrainian government on celebrations in the capital to mark the country's anniversary of independence from Soviet rule.
Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that Moscow could try something particularly ugly in the run-up to Wednesday's anniversary. The U.S. Embassy in Kyiv said U.S. citizens should leave Ukraine now by their own means if it's safe to do so. The U.S. warning also follows the alleged car bomb attack on the daughter of a prominent Russian ultra-nationalist. Moscow has blamed the killing on Ukrainian agents, but Kyiv denies the accusation. This is not the first time the United States has issued such a warning. And the State Department has clarified its view on basketball legend Dennis Rodman's proposed Russia trip to help Brittany Griner. I want to be clear, he, is, he would not uh, be traveling on behalf of the U.S. government. I've just uh, reiterated what we've said now for the past several weeks. We put forward a substantial proposal uh, to Russia uh, to seek the freedom of Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner. Uh, we believe that anything other than negotiating further through the established channel uh, is likely to complicate and hinder those release efforts. Rodman is a five-time NBA champion, and Griner is a star player in the WNBA and a two-time Olympic champion. Earlier this month, Griner was convicted by a Russian court and given a nine-year sentence on drug charges. Rodman told NBC News on Saturday that he plans to visit Russia to seek Griner's release. Rodman has sought to inject himself into international diplomacy in the past. He is one of a handful of Westerners to have met North Korean head of state Kim Jong-un. The United States has offered to exchange Griner for a Russian arms dealer serving a 25-year prison sentence in the United States. The U.S. is also trying to bring back former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan. He was sentenced by Russia in 2020 to 16 years in jail for alleged spying. Russia has accused Ukraine's Secret Service of killing Daria Dugina in a car bomb attack near Moscow. President Vladimir Putin called the alleged attack evil. Here's more. Russia on Monday accused Ukraine of orchestrating the car bombing that killed the daughter of a prominent Russian nationalist near Moscow over the weekend. Russian investigators said Darya Dugina was killed on Saturday when a bomb placed in a Toyota Land Cruiser exploded. Dugina's father, Alexander Dugin, is a prominent advocate for Russian military expansion. In his first public statement on his daughter's death, Dugin said Darya had been savagely killed by Ukraine. Ukraine, which has been fending off a Russian military invasion for nearly six months, has denied any involvement in the bombing. Saturday's attack comes after a number of recent high-profile explosions in Russian-controlled territory, which some suspect could showcase Ukraine's ability to launch long-range attacks or sabotage. But Kiev has so far not claimed responsibility. Kiev on Monday banned public celebrations of its National Independence Day, marking 31 years of freedom from Soviet rule due to fears of retaliatory Russian rocket attacks. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, in a weekend video address, said Moscow could try, quote, something particularly ugly in the run-up to Wednesday, which also marks half a year since Russia invaded. Russian President Vladimir Putin paid tribute to Darya Dugina as a Russian patriot. Moscow's FSB security service was quoted by Russian news agencies as saying the attack on Dugina was carried out by a Ukrainian woman who surveilled Dugina around Moscow for days and then fled to neighboring Estonia after the attack. Estonia's foreign ministry declined to comment, and there was no immediate comment from Estonia's interior ministry or police and border guard service. Alexander Dugin said a memorial service for his daughter will be held on Tuesday. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com.
And coming up, Canada and Germany are working closer together in response to the war in Ukraine. They are discussing an agreement on energy exports. And households could be paid for turning off tumble dryers and washing machines to save energy during peak hours. The proposed scheme seeks to prevent the UK from suffering blackouts over the winter. Find out more in just a minute. Good to have you back. Canada and Germany are boosting energy ties in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Germany fears that Russia could further reduce natural gas supplies this winter in retaliation for Western sanctions. Here are the details. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz met with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in Montreal, Canada on Monday during a visit with a delegation of German company executives. Canada is seeking to boost liquefied natural gas and critical mineral exports to Germany. We are in a situation in the short term where we will do what we can to contribute to uh, the global uh, supply of energy by increasing our capacities in the short term and explore ways to see if it makes sense to export LNG and if there's a business case for it to export LNG uh, directly to Europe. Trudeau says ministers from the two countries and various companies are discussing if it makes sense to transport the natural gas directly from the Canadian East Coast. In the medium term and long term, Canada can and will position itself to be a key supplier of energy to the world in a net zero economy. This is happening while both countries try to reduce their dependency on fossil fuel. The German chancellor responds to the offer from Canada. What Russia is doing is splitting population, splitting allies, splitting all those who are supporting the Ukraine. And this should never, never succeed. And this is the reason why we are so thankful for the decision of the Canadian government. The two countries are expected to announce on Tuesday agreements for Canada to accelerate hydrogen and critical mineral exports to Germany. In the UK, owners of homes with smart meters could be paid to turn off high-energy appliances during peak hours. This will lower the risk of blackouts during winter. The plan comes amid a new forecast predicting energy bills will top £6,000, or about $7,000, next April. NTD's Malcolm Hudson has this report from London. From October, people could be paid to turn off their home appliances during peak hours to reduce the risk of blackouts this winter. National Grid Electricity System Operator, or ESSO, is understood to be preparing to announce the scheme within the next fortnight. Households with smart meters are likely to be the beneficiaries of the plan. Currently at £1,971 for the average household, the energy price cap is predicted to rise above £3,500 in October before going as high as £4,800 in January. Expert consultants have warned the price cap could reach as high as £6,000 per year from next April. Minimising the use of appliances such as dishwashers, tumble dryers and even video game consoles during the peak hours of 5pm to 8pm could see rebates of up to £6 per kilowatt hour saved. National Grid ESSO is in consultations with energy firms and with energy regulator Ofgem. The plans follow a trial with 100,000 Octopus Energy customers earlier this year, when as little as 20p was paid for every kilowatt hour saved. A range of prices have since been considered. 
Ofgem will announce the change to the energy price cap on Friday. Chancellor Nadim Zahawi last week suggested that rolling blackouts are unlikely as preparations are underway for this winter. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. The Belgian Prime Minister warns of harsh economic times throughout Europe. Energy bills are expected to continue rising due to Russia's attack on Ukraine. Prime Minister Alexander de Croo said at a news conference that the next five to ten winters will be difficult. He also said that a very difficult situation is developing throughout Europe. Similar to recent trends in the United States, the cost of natural gas products in the European Union has been skyrocketing. Prices for heating oil are expected to hit an all-time high this week with no immediate signs of slowing. Weakening economies in Germany and France are adding more pressure on EU markets and decades-high inflation and surging gas prices are dragging the continent toward recession. The euro is heading towards a 20-year low against the U.S. dollar. Despite this, the Belgian prime minister remained positive, saying he thinks that Belgium can handle the situation. And the head and deputy head of Hungary's weather service were sacked for a wrong forecast. That's according to a Monday BBC report. The forecasting error has sparked uproar in the country. It all started with the celebration of the country's national holiday, St. Stephen's Day. The plan was to hold Europe's biggest fireworks display last Saturday night. Some 40,000 fireworks were set to launch along the Danube River near the capital city of Budapest. About two million people would be watching the show, but seven hours before the scheduled start, the National Meteorological Service predicted a rainstorm. Citing extreme weather warnings, the government then postponed the event for a week. But what happened was that the storm shifted course and didn't hit the capital. In reaction, government supporters were outraged by the forecasters' alleged incompetence in spite of a weather service apology and explanation. Meanwhile, some 100,000 others in the country are calling for the cancellation of the show given the war in neighboring Ukraine and the tight financial situation at home. And over in Spain, a car got stuck on some stairs in a Madrid bus terminal for no apparent reason. Local firefighters moved it out overnight. Firefighters hooked the front of the car up to special ropes. They then used pulleys to pull it out to ground level over a staircase. The whole transfer took over two hours. Police say the car was stolen. The driver broke the door to the bus station and drove in through the bus lane. He reportedly tried to drive up the stairs, but got stuck. He was then taken to a hospital. Very few passengers were at the station at the time, so no one was injured, during the, including the driver, but it's still unclear what he was trying to do. Police are now investigating to clarify the situation. And coming up, ancient synagogues in Venice's famed Jewish ghetto undergo restoration thanks to the instrumental fundraising efforts of an Israeli art historian. And NASA releases stunning images of Jupiter taken by its newest telescope. Tech advances in space imaging show Jupiter as you've never seen it before. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Would you spend $5,000 on a bottle of wine and not drink it? That's what entrepreneur, art collector, and former investment banker Tulio Massoni is hoping. His wine is called Via Mari 10, which is the name of the building where it's made. It's grown in what he says is the world's smallest vineyard atop a 16th century palazzo. It's a little more than 200 square feet, enough for just 29 bottles of red wine each year. The wine is aged and bottled there, but sold in an art gallery down the road. Missoni says, quote, 
My wine is a form of artistic expression, a philosophical provocation, something to keep in your living room so that you can chat about it with your friends and tell them about the lunatic who put a vineyard on his rooftop, end quote. Ancient synagogues are being restored in Venice's famed Jewish ghetto. The $10.8 million project will see the renovation of three synagogues that have fallen into disrepair, along with other spaces, including museums and technology rooms. Established in 1516, the Jewish ghetto in Venice is the oldest in the world. The small community of Jews that arrived at the beginning of the 16th century grew steadily, and in 1528, they decided to build their first synagogue, now called the German one. More soon followed, with the Canton, possibly French, being built in 1532, the Italian in 1570, and the Spanish in 1574. Synagogues are a means for a, a, a religious life, but we are involved in, in practical reconstruction and restoration of, of monuments that as a small community we can't, we can't really uh, cope with. The Jewish ghetto community grew steadily, and by 1550, the number of Jews had reached 5,000. Nowadays, the community is dwindling, with numbers down to around 430. Over the centuries, the synagogues fell into disrepair, but now they are being restored thanks to the fundraising efforts of an Israeli art historian. It is very important for us to maintain the, com the, the community and the synagogues as part of the community and community life because they are a testimony to the life that it was, to the history of our community, small community. David Landau is an Israeli art historian and has been instrumental in securing funds for the restoration of the synagogues. I was really deeply offended by the state of these synagogues, the, el the earlier synagogues that were built on in the 16th century, which is my period, as it were. I am a specialist in Renaissance art, and um, it just offended me. Lando says he is confident that all work can be completed by the end of 2023. In the meantime, the locals are looking forward to welcoming the community and tourists to the restored synagogue. After two years of pandemic restrictions, Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Over in Nepal, a Sherpa is greeted with a roaring welcome upon his arrival home in Kathmandu. He just set a climbing record by scaling the world's 14 tallest peaks twice. Sana Sherpa was welcomed with traditional dance, songs, and colorful scarves at the airport. He finished his second circuit of the world's tallest peaks on July 21st when he reached the top of Pakistan's Gasherbrum II. Eight of the 14 highest peaks, including Mount Everest, are in Nepal. The other six are in Pakistan and the Tibet region of China. Sherpas are known for their mountaineering skills and often guide expeditions to Everest for visitors climbing. They perform religious rites asking for forgiveness for setting foot on its peak every year. It can't all be Sherpas, but if lack of internet access at thousands of feet above sea level is what's keeping you from climbing, you're in luck. Mount Kilimanjaro is getting Wi-Fi. Tanzania has installed high-speed internet for climbers of Africa's tallest mountain. It's designed for those adventurers who feel that if they can't post themselves summiting on Instagram, it's like it never happened. Right now, the coverage is good up to 12,000 feet, or about two-thirds of the mountain. They plan to extend the coverage to 19,000 feet by the end of the year. The move has been welcomed as a boost to tourism, but others wish there was better access in remote villages. 
Research is showing promising results for those who suffer with chronic back pain. A new treatment works to reshape the brain's relationship with pain. Here's Gina Marie who brings us Strong Mind and Body. Chronic back pain affects millions of Americans. Most, however, can't identify the source of that pain. Neither can x-rays, tests or other tools that doctors use diagnose such problems. And perhaps unsurprisingly, most treatments just don't work. About 85% of people who report chronic back pain don't have a test result to highlight a cause. They go through physical therapy and medication to no avail. But a study suggests that a few weeks may be all that's needed to unlearn pain. Most treatments for chronic pain operate under the assumption that it's caused by the body. This new study was done under the premise that the brain can generate pain in the absence of an injury or after an injury has healed. By unlearning that pain, sufferers may be able to relieve their suffering. The study had very strong results. It involved 151 men and women who experienced back pain for at least six months. They were divided into three groups, a treatment group, a control group that continued with their routine treatment, and a placebo group that received a subcutaneous saline injection in the back. The treatment group took part in a four-week psychological treatment. This is known as pain reprocessing therapy and they attended eight one-hour sessions. The findings were published in JAMA Psychology. Results showed that 66% of the treatment group were pain-free or nearly pain-free after treatment. They stayed that way for one year. That compared to 20% who received the placebo and 10% who continued with routine treatment. Researchers explain that neutral pathways are partly to blame for how people experience pain. Different brain regions are activated more often during chronic pain than acute pain. Certain neuro networks in chronic pain patients are sensitive to overreact to mild stimuli. Therefore, by thinking about pain as something safe instead of threatening, patients are able to neutralize it. This seems to be what happened during the study. Brain scans revealed that brain regions associated with pain processing had quietened significantly after treatment. If you've been experiencing untreatable chronic pain, this is an avenue worth exploring. It may have lasting effects to help you get back to a pain-free life. The world's newest and biggest space telescope is showing Jupiter as never before, auroras and all. Scientists released the shots of the solar system's biggest planet, NASA says the new images from the James Webb Telescope will give scientists even more clues to Jupiter's inner life. The images are actually a composite of several photos taken at different wavelengths of light. They show auroras, a kind of magnetic glow extending to high altitudes above both the northern and southern poles of Jupiter. The Great Red Spot, a storm so big it could swallow Earth, appears white in these views, as do other clouds, because they reflect a lot of sunlight. You can also see Jupiter's faint rings and two tiny moons. The data gathered from James Webb will help researchers study the dynamics and chemistry of Jupiter, its rings, and its satellite system. One of the older galaxies appearing in the background of the photo dates back around 13.1 billion years. The Big Bang, the theoretical flashpoint that set the expansion of the known universe into motion, is measured at 13.8 billion years ago. 
The U.S. and Russia will swap crews on two space flights next month. The first will be NASA's Frank Rubio on board a Soyuz rocket with two Russians launching from Kazakhstan. Uh, this cruise off really represents the ongoing effort of uh, tremendous teams on both sides and uh, amazing people that make this happen. Uh, I think it's important when we're at moments of uh, possible tension uh, elsewhere, um, you know, that, that human spaceflight and ex- exploration, something that we're both, uh, both agencies are incredibly passionate about, uh, that that remains a form of diplomacy and partnership where we can find common ground and keep achieving great things together. This will be Rubio's first space flight since becoming an astronaut in 2017. The Miami, Florida native is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy. He served as a Black Hawk helicopter pilot with more than 1,000 hours of flight time. He then went on to medical school and is now a board-certified family physician and flight surgeon. Also in September, a Russian cosmonaut will board a SpaceX rocket flying from Florida along with astronauts from America and Japan. Starting in 2020, SpaceX began flying station crews from NASA's Kennedy Space Center. Prior to that, it was common for U.S. astronauts to launch on Russia's Soyuz rockets. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. 